Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. This week I went down a rabbit trail very, very, very far down a rabbit trail, learning, reading, watching documentaries about the Barkley Marathons. The Barkley Marathons is, to call it an ultra marathon, is to not give it enough credit. It is this wild race in the mountains of Tennessee, just outside of Knoxville. And this race is five laps. You have 12 hours to complete each lap. Each lap is at least 20 miles. They don't know because it's just literally up and around this mountain. The race is designed by this crazy person named Lazarus Lake. And Lazarus Lake organizes this and literally gives you a set of instructions like, Go up to the tree that has four trunks and then turn west and head out another mile beyond there. It is uh, one part ultra marathon, one part orienteering, and 100% crazy. In fact, they allow 40 people a year to run this race. The application process is incredibly secretive. You have to know somebody who knows somebody to even be able to apply. And of these people that have run the race, there it has been going now, there have been 1,480 runners who have run the Barkley Marathons in its history. There have only been 15 finishers since 1986. Most years, not a single person finishes. If you finish three laps, they say that you did a fun run, 60 miles. If you finish all five laps, it is the equivalent of scaling Mount Everest from sea level to its top and back down again twice. There is so much that I could tell you about the Barkley Marathons, including the registration fee being a license plate and whatever clothes Lazarus needs for the year. I could tell you how the runner's start time is not announced. It could happen any time in a 12-hour window, and they just get a one-hour warning where Lazarus blows on a conch shell to tell you that you've got an hour to come to the starting line, and then the race begins when Lazarus lights his cigarette. I mean, the whole thing is, is too much to imagine. The reason why I've been thinking about that so much this week is we come to Exodus 19 this morning. And in our mind, in the minds that we have, when we think of the Exodus event, we often have this idea that Moses went up Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, came back down, broke them, went back up and got a tablet replacement, and then came back down. Just this kind of went up, got the tablets, came down, went up, got the replacements, came down. But that's just not the case. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19 alone, Moses is going to ascend and descend Mount Sinai three times. That's three times he goes up this mountain and down this mountain. Just like the people who are running the Barkley Marathons, he is consistently going up and down this mountain. And you see what happens is, because we have this sort of Charlton Hestonized, disnified view of Moses on Mount Sinai, we're able to keep ourselves at arm's length from what's actually happening in this passage. It allows us to kind of block out what's really going on. These preconceived notions we have keep us from seeing the drama and, if I'm being honest, 
terror of this story. A holy God has descended to earth and is speaking to his people. So when we keep this picture distant, when we have the the Disney version, we miss the beauty of what God is inviting us into. God has saved us to be with him, but that is no easy thing because as we see in this passage, God is a consuming fire. And so I want to invite you to hear this story with fresh ears. I want to invite you to listen anew to this story that is a beautiful picture of God's love and grace, but also his holiness. So if you are able, I invite you to stand as I read Exodus chapter 19. The words will be on the screen behind me, or you can follow along on a device or your Bible. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words as you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together saying and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And smoke went, uh, the smoke of it went up like a, the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. 
And the Lord said to Moses, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrated. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So this story is in many ways the turning point of the book of Exodus. Up to this point, we have been concerned with God bringing the people out of the land of Egypt, bringing them out of their slavery to the Egyptians. But now they have come to the mountain, the first major stop on the, land, the way to the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Now, we're not exactly sure where Mount Sinai is. It's probably on the Sinai Peninsula, not certain, but probably there. But whatever, wherever it is, what we do know is that it is this enormous mountain that Moses is going up and down over and over again. And the first time as they arrive at the mountain, God lays out for Moses, God tells Moses what is going to happen, why all of this is happening. And what he says to them is sort of the charter and constitution for the people of Israel. It's right there in verses three through five. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." There's a couple of things about this charter, about this, uh, these verses that I want us to see and see how that works out in the people of Israel's life and our own. And the first thing that I want us to fix in our mind is that grace and redemption always comes before law. If you're looking in your Bibles and you look to the next chapter, what you're going to see is that the next chapter is the Ten Commandments. We're not going to cover that in this series. If you're interested in what Justin and City Church's take on the Ten Commandments might be, like scroll way down in the sermon archives. It's in there somewhere. We did a series on that a few years back. But it's always important for us to fix in our mind that God never begins with law and then goes to grace. He always begins with grace, which leads us to joyfully wanting to keep the law. The first movement is not the people meriting or earning favor with God. Rather, God lavishes his grace on them just because he chose to do so. Think about this with the people of Israel. Did God give Israel the 10 commandments and say, if you do a good job with this, then you'll get to do an exodus? No. He brought them out just because of his covenant, just because he is faithful out of the land of Egypt. He redeemed them from their slavery and then, and then brought them to the law. God doesn't pay attention to our actions and to get his attention. It's always grace that entices us to follow him. True obedience to God is always a movement of what God has already done in us. Grace always comes before law. You can't swap out that order. But just like, just like God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, God is calling us too to be faithful covenant people, not to earn God's affection, not to earn God's approval, but because of our love and care and gratitude for what Jesus has already done on our behalf. 
So the law for us becomes a roadmap of what covenant faithfulness for us looks like. Covenant faithfulness for us looks like what Moses is about to lay out. But any obedience in your life and mine must always grow out of the grace that we have previously experienced. If it isn't, all you get is law-keeping for the sake of law-keeping. This was the issue that Jesus fought the Pharisees on so much. This is an issue many of us are familiar with. I am deeply familiar with this uh, because I went to the now-defunct Clearwater Christian College. And at Clearwater Christian College, if your hair was not cut properly, it meant that you did not have a proper relationship with Jesus. If you did not check off all of the right boxes of spirituality, attend the right number of of events, and do all of the things that they thought were culturally appropriate, including not having sideburns, um, because that's something, in fact, the Bible like says to grow sideburns for the, that's why the Orthodox, you know what, never mind. We're not going down that road. What we want to talk about though, is that our religion, our spirituality, our indebtedness to Jesus is never just law keeping. It is always us being filled with awe and wonder and gratitude for what Jesus has already done for us. The grace that he has shown to us drives us to want to follow him, drives us to want to love him. And we have to resist the urge to boil down genuine Christian faithfulness to any sort of list of do's and don'ts. But most of us here in St. Pete, some of us struggle in that way, but most of us struggle in another way. We struggle with the concept of grace and the law of God. Some of us neglect God's grace, which comes first. We neglect what God has already done for us. And one of the ways that we do this is by sort of lowering the bar of morality. Instead of things like the Ten Commandments being the baseline for how we might behave, we just sort of lower it to be really nice. This is, this is something that goes on in my heart. Many of you know I've talked about this before, how I struggle with people-pleasing. And my struggle with people-pleasing is rooted in my love of approval. That is something that is a core idol of my heart. And it flows out in so many ways. This is not a statue that I hold up and put on my bookshelf and bow down to, but rather the thing that is internally driving me more often than I would like to admit. And we we are all stamped in different ways by this. I think if I'm just nice enough and everybody likes me, then maybe God will like me. That might not be your struggle, but what about your desire for security? Your need for control? What about, what about the affirmation and power? All of us have these different ways that we want to lower the standard of what God wants of us so that we can accomplish it. But the problem is, is that's not who God is. That's not what God is about. As you read this passage, we're going to talk in a second about the holiness of God. If if an animal comes near the mountain, you shoot the animal. That's the bar. The bar is higher than we could ever admit. So anytime we try to, to bring the bar down lower so that maybe we can jump it, we are doing injustice to God. But the same is true when we ignore the law of God. I mean, here in St. Pete, if you were to walk down Central Avenue and say, hey, do you think that there is a cosmic standard that we should all live by? You would be, you would be laughed at 
on any portion of Central, downtown, Arts District, Edge District, Grand Central, every single place, hey, how about a cosmic standard we should all follow? Yeah, 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 keep on moving. <laughs> keep on going. <laughs> I don't want that. Go talk to the people who are trying to get you to sign, you know, up for whatever they're signing up for around there. No, we're all individualists. We've fully bought into this idea of autonomy. That's not how God has called us to live. God has called us to live as covenant people. Do you notice that God says that you will be my covenant people. This is not something new. The the language of covenant doesn't show up right before the 10 commandments. This has been infused through the whole story of Exodus. When God says that he has heard the cries of the people, he says he has heard the cries of the people and is going to be faithful to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even the language that he uses to tell Moses what to do. He says, go tell this to the children of Jacob. Go tell this to the children of Israel. This is covenant language through and through from the beginning of the book till now. And so what we have in Exodus 19 and 20 as God covenants with his people on Sinai is not something new. It's not something where God is initiating a new covenant, but it's the continuation and clarification of what God has already been doing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's covenant with mankind is singular And it's so that his glory might be shown to all the nations around. So that the people of God would be a kingdom of priests, loving and serving the world. And we see this in beautiful ways, how this has come fulfilled in the church itself. How God has unleashed the church to be a kingdom of priests and foreigners living in a foreign land. That's why the Bible, the New Testament especially, uses the language that we are aliens. We are citizens of heaven sent as emissaries back to be the loving hands and feet of Jesus as we faithfully try to imitate him. Which, by the way, that faithful imitation of God ends up looking an awful lot like the Ten Commandments. Ends up looking an awful lot like loving the one true God and and not trying to worship him according to our own ideas and being faithful in our ways that we respect others and love others. But we do all of that because of what God has already done for us, because of the amazing grace that he has already shown for us, he calls us to be that light to our family, our coworkers, and our neighbors. And as Moses continues this sort of Barclay marathon, ascents and descents on the mountain, the other striking thing about this passage comes into focus. And I've already mentioned it before. All of these strict rules about who can go on the mountain, who can't go on the mountain, and what are the boundaries of the mountain. If anybody was to go up to the mountain, they would have to be killed. And it's, it's, it's funny, in the passage there, it says that they're to be shot. And obviously, this does not have in mind 20th century firearms. And I, I could not find a commentary that dealt with the idea of, what are you shooting them with? <laughs> I mean, is it, they're going to get slingshotted? Is it like one of the David's, you know, thing? I have no idea, but apparently if you went on the mountain, you were to be shot. And not only were people to be shot if they went on the mountain, but the holiness of God was so much that they had to consecrate themselves. When Moses, Mount Sinai is where Moses encountered the burning bush. And what does God say to Moses when, when Moses finds the burning bush? Take off your shoes. Why? Because you're on holy ground. 
What does he say to the people? Abstain from sexual relations and wash your clothes. You need to be prepared. You need to be sanctified. One pastor, Tim Chester, says about God's holiness that it's nuclear. It's nuclear. You know, you can't just walk into a nuclear, I can't walk into a nuclear reactor, casually waltz in and say, well, hello, my fellow nuclear engineers. How do you do? No, there'd be a thousand checkpoints around the way. It's so dangerous. It's, it's mind-blowing the security that they have. I mean, if you've driven past the old nuclear plant up in Crystal River, it feels like it's set off on an island and gives off very do-not-come-here vibes. That's because it's so crazy, the power of nuclear energy. Holiness is the same way. In the same way that you have to put on the right clothes in order to go into the nuclear reactor, you have to treat God's holiness with reverence and seriousness just like you would a power plant. Either that or you're incredibly foolish. Don't touch the edge of the mountain. Don't come near or else God will break out against you. This is how serious the holiness of God is. And yet, there is this tension in this passage. There is this tension between how God is holy and separate and other, and yet at the exact same time, he is calling his people near. He is calling his people to come near, to draw near to him. The holy God is going to speak to his people. You know, our, our Disney version of this story is that Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and only God and Moses talk. There are times where God and Moses do talk apart from the people of Israel. But in verse 9 of our text, it says that I'm going to come down in a cloud and speak so that they can hear me. I am going to speak directly to them. The holy creator, God, is giving us warning and invitation. He is showing us his holiness, but also calling us to be near to him. Holiness and nearness. And yet those are things, those are categories that we don't talk about much, that we don't think about much, not with this level of seriousness. I mean, in, in here around us, it's easy to disregard the holiness of God as we talk with our neighbors here in St. Petersburg because believing in God is like strange from the get-go. I mean, you guys have all heard and seen the statistics about how St. Pete's one of the least religious cities in the country. And so when you start talking about God, that's strange from the get-go. Like you're, you're already starting on odd. And then you want to talk about how God is a holy God? No, 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 no. If we're going to talk to our neighbors, let's just make God a cosmic teddy bear who's really nice and likes everybody and is very friendly. And that way it's palatable for the people around us. But God can't be spoken of. God can't be thought about apart from his holiness. Don't even touch the mountain. But don't get so lost in that terror. Don't try to relieve the tension by just seeing that and not seeing the way that the holy God is calling us near. In his wisdom and grace, he has chosen to draw near to us. He has chosen to love us. The holy God of the universe has chosen us to be his people, that he might love us. He has given himself for us. And so we live in between this push and pull between the holiness and the nearness of God. 
And that beautiful tension is seen and held here at Mount Sinai. The holy God draws near to his people. He gives them grace and then gives them law. And it changes the people of Israel. Throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, this moment is going to keep getting referenced. This moment is going to keep being important to the prophets, to the psalmist, to all of the writers of the Old Testament. And it's no surprise then that this moment is significant to the writers of the New Testament. We have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews, but listen to what the author said. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If any beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is what the Hebrews writers paints this picture of Sinai as, remembers it as. But then he says this, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and innumerable angels and feastal gathering and to an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to spirits of righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than able. Church, this is what we have come to. This is what we are doing right now. In Exodus, it says that this is the first time that the Bible use, uses the term assembly for the people of God. The first time the people of God are assembled to worship. But the writer of Hebrews tells us now that every time we assemble to worship, we don't do it on our own. We experience the holiness and nearness of God, not just as the people here of City Church, but with innumerable angels. There are no empty seats in this theater in the eyes of God. Sup, Gabe? There are no empty seats because God is all around us. The angels are joining in with us. The saints who have come before join their voices with ours as we all sing together. Church, this is what we are called to individually and corporately. What if we're the kind of people who hold on and live in the tension between the holiness and nearness of God? What if we contemplate those truths and share how we see God working through those things with each other? and with other people that we meet? What if we live our lives driven by the wonder of God's redemption, his soaring grace that brought us out on the wings of eagles? What about if we wonder and, and ponder how the creator God has chosen to covenant with us? And what if that drove us out of love and awe and wonder to follow the roadmap for being covenant participants with him, following his way of doing things, not out of a sense of self-righteousness, but from a place of self-forgetfulness and submitting to God who knows what is best and what is good for us. In the Barkley Marathons, it's interesting because in between each of your five laps, for the time between when you end your last lap and start your next lap, that's the only time you're allowed to receive any assistance. Once you're out on the course, if you receive assistance from anybody outside of the race, you're immediately disqualified. But there is one exception to this rule. In the Barkley Marathons, no matter what part of the race that you're in, you can always receive help from other runners. 
you can always receive help from your competitors. And that happens year after year. In fact, the last few finishers have worked in teams of two for the first four laps. And then because of some of the rules, they don't get to work together on the fifth lap. That's a whole story. But they can always help one another. Beloved, this is us. We're on this course together. We're running this race together. Yes, it's filled with difficulty and struggles of joy and sorrows, holiness and nearness, grace that calls us to faithfulness. But let us not only live in this moment, but let's be keep, 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 be, keep. Let's be people who help and encourage one another on this hill. Let's spur one another on to awe and worship. Let's do this together because it's impossible to do this alone. Let's pray.